Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Before AI can help your business predict demand, accelerate growth, inform decisions, automate tasks, reveal insights, generate content, you have to trust it. Introducing WatsonX Governance, helping you govern any AI as data, models, and policies change so you can scale it responsibly. Let's create AI that begins with trust with WatsonX Governance. Learn more at ibm.com governance. IBM, let's create. The things that scare me most end up being the most intellectually satisfying. And so I try not to ever let my fear control me to the point where I don't do something that could be good and useful. I do things that terrify me all the time, and I just have the capacity to be terrified and to do them anyway. You know, I think it's important to live my life. Like, fat phobia is real, racism is real, homophobia is real. But you can't let that constrain your life. Otherwise, you'll never leave the house. And, and then that's what they want. They want you to feel so much shame that you stop living. And... The older I get, the more I recognize that I have every right to live and be in the world and that I shouldn't have to shrink or make myself small to make other people comfortable. That was Roxanne Gay. I'm Sam Fragoso, and this is Talk Easy. Welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. I'm Sam Fragoso, and today on the podcast is Roxanne Gay. A quick resume for the uninitiated. Roxanne is a contributing opinion writer for the New York Times and the author of many award-winning books, including two, that's right, two New York Times bestsellers, Bad Feminist and Hunger. She's also the author of World of Wakanda for Marvel uh, regardless of the format that she is writing in, she is, above all, a true talent. I imagine many of you listening are familiar with her work. Uh, the rest of you, I hope after this episode, you will seek out her writing. But recently, something that struck me about Roxanne in this pandemic is the generosity she's exhibited online. 
If you do not follow her on Twitter, she's at rgay. And every week for over a month now, she's opened her pocketbook to send $100 to anyone online who needs help. You don't have to show proof that you need help. You don't have to take a picture of your ID or your bills. She is doing this in good faith and on an honor system, um, helping people out with groceries, help with rent, insurance, G&E. Um, certainly $100 cannot fix anyone's problems. And she can't possibly help everyone, but I wanted to shout out her efforts here. This is the kind of direct assistance that makes you think, just for a second, that the internet may not be so bad. Of course, it is a toxic and bad place, and almost no one online knows that better than Roxanne. As an outspoken, forceful woman of color on the internet, she has publicly grappled with these nasty ad hominem attacks for years in a way that few others have. And she's done so in a way that I deeply admire and respect. Uh, more importantly, I hope we can exist in a future where we don't do this. Maybe people hiding behind the anonymity of Twitter and the internet can consider being a little more decent and kind to each other. Because let's be honest, Roxanne Gay, or anyone for that matter, should have to spend zero time on the internet defending themselves uh, from hate. I mention all this not just as uh, a public service announcement, but for context, as it's something that we discuss in this episode. On a positive note, before we get going here, I want to bring attention to the people at Feeding America. They're the nation's largest hunger relief organization. Through a network of 200 food banks and 60,000 food pantries, they provide meals to more than 40 million people each and every year. School closures, job disruptions, lack of paid sick leave, and the coronavirus's disproportionate impact on adults aged 60 and older, and, of course, low-income families, are all contributing to the unprecedented demands placed on food banks across this country. So, last month, Feeding America launched the COVID-19 Response Fund, a national food and fundraising effort. To learn more about the great work they're doing and how you can help, be sure to visit their site at www.feedingamerica.org. And now, here is Roxanne Gay. Roxanne Gay, thank you so much for being here. I want to start with uh, how you're holding up this afternoon in the midst of a quarantine. I think that there are good days and bad. Today is pretty uneventful so far, so I'm holding up pretty well, I would say, all things considered. I have a question. I, I, I was rereading um, a couple of pieces of yours in the New York Times. Uh, they go back to 2018. You wrote an article called No One Is Coming to Save Us from Trump's racism. Mm -hmm. I don't want to spend the hour talking about politics, but I feel like we have to address uh, this outright in the beginning. Um, you wrote, I am tired of comfortable lies. Mm -hmm. I have lost patience with the shock supposedly well-meaning people express every time Mr. Trump says or does something terrible, but well in character. I don't have any hope to offer. I'm not going to make people feel better 
about the gilded idea of America that becomes more and more compromised and impoverished with each passing day of the Trump presidency. So that was in 2018. Mm-hmm. You didn't have hope to offer then. What do you have now? Uh, you know, I'm actually, it's funny you bring that essay up. I'm writing a follow-up saying um, no one's coming to save us from Trump's incompetence. And, you know, I think that it's really, right now we're dealing with the inevitable sort of endpoint of where we began with how bad will it get with this buffoon as president. And I think we all knew it was going to get very bad. But after the shithole countries debacle, you know, then we learned that they were separating families at the border and keeping children in cages. And those children are still in cages. It's been really bad for the most vulnerable Americans for a very long time. Not even just Americans, but uh, people also trying to come to the United States. And so now that it's starting to affect everyone, not only the most vulnerable, I think we're going to finally see people responding the way we should have been responding all along Mm -hmm. um, with urgency and with finding ways to tighten the social fabric that is supposed to hold everything together. Because Trump's incompetence has shown us just how fragile that safety net is and, frankly, how non-existent it is for, you know, anyone making probably, I would say, under, you know, $80,000 a year, depending on where they live. And so, you know, it's really frustrating that we're in the place that we're in, but it was inevitable. I mean, there was always going to be some sort of calamity or grand crisis that Trump was going to have to respond to. And I just don't think any of us expected that it was going to be a pandemic that literally nobody can escape. The line I keep coming back to is, I don't have any hope to offer. Yeah. And I bring that up because it seems in media that most folks turn to women and people of color for hope. Mm -hmm. Why do you think that is? Because people are racist and... They tend to believe that people of color only know hardship and have therefore gained some sort of magical wisdom from experiencing that hardship. And instead of using that wisdom to save ourselves, uh, white people think we're going to use that wisdom to impart knowledge to them and make them feel better (laughs) about themselves. And it's absurd. And we saw this especially um, at the midterms. And when Doug Jones, I think his name is Doug Jones, Doug Jones was elected as um, Alabama senator. And people were like, black women are going to save us. And it was so absurd because black women were like, were saving themselves. Uh And everyone else happened to benefit from that. But it's frustrating that people always think that it's the job of women of color, but black women especially, to sort of mammy them throughout life and never have any regard for themselves. Do you think that tendency to ask black women has gotten better? Are people asking the question less? No, of course not. In fact, they're asking it more because we're in a crisis and people want salvation instead of thinking about the things that they can do for themselves um, and for their communities. I think a lot of people assume that salvation is going to come from somewhere else, 
rather than thinking that even if it's hard to wrap our minds around, we might be able to at least contribute to our salvation by doing things on our, not on our own, but like by initiating um, certain kinds of things. So they turn to you. People do tend to turn to me, but I mean, I turn them right back around. But then you do and you don't because the way you help folks on Twitter, I found it really um, kind of inspiring and, and moving and not unexpected, but it just not everyone is doing that. Of course, not everyone has the means to do that. Well, yeah, but I mean, that's the that's an example of like not waiting for salvation to come from another source. It's so I'm not saying like it's not a bootstrap thing that I'm saying. I'm saying that we have to stop expecting the government, which is so rankly incompetent to do the kinds of things that we need done right now, even though that's the way it should be and we should still fight for it. Instead, we have to sort of take it upon ourselves to participate in our communities and and help people as best we can. And so for me, that has been, you know, giving to food banks. And of course, when I can, and in the modest ways that I can, giving money directly to people who need it. Because oftentimes when you have to get aid from a nonprofit or from the government, there's a lot of bureaucracy and a lot of paperwork and a lot of waiting. And hunger doesn't like to wait. And so if you need groceries, if you need to keep your electricity on, if you need to keep your water on, um, you need money immediately. And so I think it shouldn't be that people have to fill this gap, but that is what it is right now. And so I'm just trying to fill that gap in a really small way. And I'm not alone. There are a lot of people, well, there are not a lot of people, but there are some people that are doing this alongside me. Right. And of course, I am unemployed right now, and I'm going to be unemployed probably until 2021. And so it's overwhelming because I can only do so much. And I'm like everyone else, I'm worried about money. I just know that if I'm worried about money and I'm in a relatively good position, I know that people um, without the same level of means are also worried about money. So I do what I can. And I hope celebrities are doing it in their ways. I really do, because people who make... $50 million a year are going to be fine, no matter what. People who make $5 million a year are going to be fine unless they're gambling or something. And so I do think that we have a responsibility to do something. I mean, I just think we have a responsibility to help each other. Thankfully, there are no sports to bet on, so the gambling (laughs) shouldn't be a complete issue. (laughs) Right now, no. Yeah, I, I feel really... I keep wondering what addicts are doing right now. Oh, they're betting on like when they're going to run out of groceries next. I'm sure they're figuring it out. Yeah. You wrote another article on October 30th of 2018. Maybe you're looking at these for your upcoming piece, um, but it was around the midterms. Mm-hmm. You wrote that the headline of it was you're disillusioned. That's fine. Vote anyway. Yeah. In the article you wrote, we cannot afford disillusionment. We cannot afford to do nothing. Lives are at stake, and if you don't recognize that, you are no better than those with whom you are disillusioned. You spend, it seems, a fair amount of time online engaging with the discourse in your own way, trying to be a voice of reason and compassion and big ideas. Do you sense that disillusionment to be even stronger than it was 
back in 2018? In some ways, yes, because this time around, unlike 2016, we had a robust primary early on. There were several really good qualified candidates on the Democratic side. And so there was this opportunity potentially for some real change with um, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, Kamala Harris, Cory Booker. And so I do think there was a lot of optimism and people were starting to get energized. And then as these really great candidates started dropping out one by one for, um, you know, lack of financial means to stay in the race and starting to look at the delegate count and realizing it was never going to happen, you know, I think people became more disillusioned. And now that we are left with the establishment candidate, you know, I think there are a lot of really disillusioned people. I'm just hoping that that disillusionment does not keep people at home in November because, like, fine, be disillusioned. But if you think that apathy and doing nothing um, because your candidate of choice did not make it all the way through is reasonable when the alternative is Donald Trump, like you are fucking kidding yourself and you are just contributing to whatever horrifying thing comes next because it's going to be horrifying. It's bad now. It's just going to keep getting worse with Trump. There is no bottom for the Republican Party. And so I'm really worried that people are overly disillusioned, but I also get why. I mean, Joe Biden, who might be a rapist, And Donald Trump, who we know is a rapist, it's like, oh, my God, which is the lesser of the two rapists? It's it's a lot. When framed like that, it really does give oxygen to that idea of the lesser of two evils. Yeah, it's truly the lesser of two evils. Even before the Tara Reid allegations came out, um, I was not happy about Joseph Biden because I remember what he did to Anita Hill. And he's just not an interesting candidate. Like, there's a reason he didn't run for president in 2016. Right. And he's always done very badly at the presidential level. I feel like there should be a rule that you can't run for president three times. I do think there should be a rule. I also think there should be a rule, and this is not popular, but I don't think people over the age of 60 should be able to run for president. Make it between 35 and 60, because we have candidates in their late 70s who are going to be in office into their 80s, and that includes the current president. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, I think there's a lot of wisdom that comes with old age, but when it's white men over and over again, we have to forgive so many of their sins. Like, oh yeah, he's a little handsy because that's just his generation. Like, how many generations are we going to say that for? Let's get some new thinking and some younger thinking in there. Even Bernie Sanders, who is by far the most progressive candidate on the Democratic ticket, you know, he's not a perfect candidate. He certainly was not my ideal candidate, though I would have happily voted for him over Joseph Biden. He just had a lot of issues and a lot of those sort of ingrained ways of thinking that aren't progressive enough for certain constituents like black people. But I just think we have to rethink what we're doing at the democratic level because we keep pushing forward, same old, same old, and getting the exact same results. In the media, there were so many people, especially white liberal folks, who said, why doesn't the black community support Bernie Sanders? That was a huge problem. And I I believe it was Jeremy O'Harris, but it, but it could have been someone else He was telling me, you know, the idea that Bernie comes down to some of these southern states and says, all the things that you have wanted for a long time are going to come to you. 
that idea of a white person telling you everything's going to be fixed has been happening forever. They are skeptical of that concept. I think that's part of it. But I think that people don't give black voters enough credit for being sophisticated um, when, in fact, we are a very sophisticated group and nor are we a monolith. Black voters, I think, again, are looking at what's available from the current candidates and they're making the most informed decision on who is going to do the least harm to our community in the long run. Mm -hmm. And this go around, the majority of black voters decided that it was going to be Joe Biden. Bernie Sanders does have black fans, isn't the word, but he, there are plenty of black people that like what Bernie Sanders is saying and support his candidacy. Um, it's just not the majority. And I think it's because, you know, Sanders did not have, he, he's very class focused in his work. And that's great because we need that. But I don't think that he brings enough of an intersectional approach. And I know that's a stupid word, but it's also not a stupid word. It's a really useful word for thinking about how, even if we're all dealing with economic hardships, the way we in which we're dealing with them and the kinds of hardships we're dealing with are going to be different depending on our subject position. And I don't think he spent enough time focusing on that and acknowledging that things are going to be different for the people in the disabled community and for women and for people of color and for trans people and for the queer community. I just feel like he just didn't quite push far enough. He was progressive, but progressive in this really singular way. And so it just didn't speak to enough Black voters. But I get why people chose Joe Biden. I do. I want to go back. You come from an upper middle class family. I do. And you go to Exeter and then you go to Yale. Uh, good schools, both of them. <laughs> of that time of going to Yale, you said, I am not a joiner. I never was. Theater was where I found my passion. Technical theater allowed you to have that space, that, that freedom to be a part of yourself. What do you remember about that year, your first two years at Yale? I spent a lot of time doing theater because I had done theater extensively throughout high school, all four years, um, technical theater. I love being behind the scenes and being one of many people working together to make the spectacle. And it's just so satisfying. So I just really was into it. And I just remember the joy I took. Well, because I was in general very unhappy during my first two years of college. And I was dealing with a lot of PTSD. And I didn't even have the language for that. I just knew that something was wrong. And I didn't know how to articulate what was wrong. And so I was looking for all kinds of ways to numb that pain and to self-medicate. And so... I just remember that year being chaotic and then I would go and work on a show and the chaos would fall away for a handful of hours. And that provided a great deal of comfort and relief. And um, I think 40 people from my high school had gone to Yale that year. It was ridiculous. And it just felt like I was in high school all over again and that I couldn't get away from who I had been in high school, which was just a big fat loser. And so um, it was challenging, but theater was always this beacon. And I remember those times very, very fondly. Did the people in your theater community know about what you were going through? No, not at all. I was very much a loner and it was very quiet. And I, I was very sort of self-contained. So they did not. I mean, I'm sure they might have suspected certain things, but... Um, 
you know, the great thing about technical theater is that you have to leave all your bullshit behind because if you're dealing with rigging, you have to make sure that it's well done so that an actor who's flying across the stage, you know, doesn't die. Right. And so that was comfortable to know that, oh my God, I really have to be on point here. I can't worry about anything else because my work here matters. And so um, that was really what I was consumed with. I'm fascinated by this summer that you write about in Hunger. You're 19 years old and you call this the beginning of your lost years. And you spent a lot of time on the internet talking to strangers. This was a different internet. It was a way different internet. People don't have that context anymore. So yeah. can you explain what was being a, an anonymous person on the internet like at that time? It was great in many ways. Back then, there were not nearly as many people on the internet as we have today. And it took a lot of energy to get online. You had to use a phone line and you had to use a modem. And even the fastest modem was not at all very fast. I remember having like a 2400 baud modem and using it to get online and thinking it was incredible. And it was very text-based instead of all of the visuals, that the graphics that we see in the imagery. And so it was really a medium where you could communicate if you liked and if you loved words, um, you could communicate extensively with people from all around the world. And so it was just incredibly exciting. And because pictures had not really made it onto the internet yet at that point, you could be anyone and you could do anything. And it, there was a lot of imaginary lives happening at that time. Who were you on the internet? You know, I was largely myself, but especially when I was going into sex chat rooms, you know, I think you become the ideal version of yourself and all your physical flaws or what you perceive as flaws disappear. And so I always made myself far more attractive than I felt and far thinner than I was online because it didn't matter. And I remember thinking, well, you know, just watching the way people were talking in various chat rooms, I was like, I think this is just a lot of men talking to each other, and half of them are pretending to be women. And turns out, as people started to unmask themselves, and you, we started to realize, oh, we can actually meet in real life, so many people were not who they said they were. It was really interesting. What was going through your head when you were boarding that plane leaving college, going to San Francisco? When I left, I thought I was just going away for a week. It was just going to be a little vacation. And so I was excited and I was nervous because I was going to meet a much older man who I had met online. And, you know, I wondered, you know, if anything bad was going to happen or if anything good was going to happen. And so I was really full of like excitement and anxiety and I also, like, the further away I got, like, the the longer we got into the flight, the more I felt, like, free, uh, free of, like, the pressure of school and having to be perfect and, you know, having to be the person people expected me to be. So uh, I was, you know, experiencing quite a lot on that flight. And then I landed and I met this guy and he was wonderful. I, I mean, I think you have to, not looking back, I'm like, oh, this guy was, like, twice my age. <laughs> so he probably wasn't that great. But he was always kind to me. He never hurt me. He never did anything non-consensual to me. And that's a low bar, but it's also 
a bar so few people can clear. And so um, it was great that it ended up being a great trip and that he ended up being exactly who I thought he was. Were you happy then? No, I was not. But happiness was not even something that I considered as a possibility. I was lost. And that's the, the best way to describe it. I was lost emotionally. I was trying to disconnect myself from an entire life that did not fit. So um, I, I was not happy. And why didn't you tell people that you were leaving? Was it just easier not to? Um, I didn't tell people because... I had asked my parents earlier that summer if I could take the next year off of college because I knew that I was heading toward a breakdown and that I needed a break. And they said no. And so I just decided, well, all right, they said no. So I guess I'm going to have to do it this way. And so I did. I don't know. It's just interesting because reality has this way. I don't know about for you, but for me, it has this way of dimming my own romantic notions and instead of letting them dim your romantic notions, you kind of pivoted and you made these big, unexpected journeys in a way that most of us would only read in a book. Like you made these fictional plot lines your reality. Mm-hmm. Were you conscious of that? Not at all. I was just needing to escape my life. And that was like my singular purpose at the time. Is that a fair characterization, by the way? No, because that's not what I was doing. I really was just escaping. And during that year, I happened to have just a lot of adventures. But it wasn't a grand romance by any stretch of the imagination. But I did find a community, a community that has been very good to me for the past 25 years. So it wasn't romantic in any sense, but it was still useful, I can't believe you let me say that whole paragraph and I was wrong the entire time. <laughs> it's okay. I mean, we can't always be right. <laughs> no, but I'd like to try to be right. <laughs> <laughs> I always wonder in going into these these interviews, like my preconceived notions, and I really enjoy and get excited by having them shattered by what is true. <laughs> Well, you know, that's the thing when you like when you write about your life um, in memoir and in essays, people then you can't control what people do with that and what they how they interpret it. And so you have to take a very expansive view to it and just let go. And so, you know, it happens in one way or another all the time. Okay, well, if if I fuck up again, just keep correcting me, please. (laughs) Don't worry, I will. Thank you. After San Francisco, you moved to Phoenix with this guy. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yes. Uh, of that time, you said, I lost my mind, and I didn't even try to pull the pieces of myself back together. I just did whatever I wanted. I did. When you're looking back at that Roxanne, what do you see? You know, I see someone who was not constrained by having to be a good Catholic girl and a good Haitian daughter for the first time in her life. And so I went a little wild. Uh, but you know, I was raised as a good girl. So my wild is someone else's sedate. And so um, <laughs> it was wild to me, but um, it was just so freeing to just be Roxanne and not have to be a certain kind of daughter to my parents or sister to my brothers or friend to my friends. I could just be me. And I found new friends and uh, it was great. Was that the first time you felt like you had some autonomy? 
uh, it's definitely the first time because I was on my own and making decisions on my own. And, you know, I, w- I found a job and eventually I moved out of the house of the older man into my own apartment with a couple roommates. And it was just the first time I was doing everything on my own without any help from anyone. I mean, without any familial help, I should say. And, you know, it was great to just be the captain of my own ship, so to speak. It's funny because you went on that trip to San Francisco because of this guy you met online. Mm -hmm. Then you went to Phoenix with him. You did your own thing. After that, I think you went to Minnesota for a girl. Mm -hmm. The moves that you made are born out of an affection for someone, it seems. But they also seem more about you than them. No, with going to San Francisco, I was not only going to meet this guy, I was, we were also going to go and go to this party, this uh, play party that was happening in the city, a big one. And so it was more about the adventure. I had never really been to California as an adult. I had only been as a child with my parents. And so it was just an opportunity to do something new. And that part was about me. But I was also going to meet many of the people that I had been in an online group with for about a year and a half. And so it was this sense of this community that I was a part of online. I was going to join it in real life. And that was extremely exciting to me because I was so lonely and I felt so isolated. And I knew that these were people with whom I would feel some sort of kinship. When your parents did find you, Mm -hmm. were you surprised? I was really surprised because, you know, I think like most 19-year-olds, 20-year-olds, you think you know everything and that you've got it all figured out. And so I just thought I was super well hidden. (laughs) And so there was no (laughs) way they were going to find me. Like the lease on the apartment was not in my name. It was in my roommate's name. So it surprised me. And they had my youngest brother call because I think they knew I would never hang up on him. So, you know, once I got over my surprise, I also realized that, I probably should stay in touch at least once in a while and let them know that I'm alive because they worried quite a lot. Do you think any part of you wanted them to find you? I don't know. I I truly don't know. I think maybe a part of me did, but that wasn't really my concern. My concern was I just want to be free. And I didn't know how to tell them that I was dealing with this trauma. And so I just wanted to be anyone else. And having like, quote unquote, run away allowed me that space. You're brought back to Nebraska, where you uh, complete undergrad. At 20, you moved to Lincoln. Again, you work some interesting jobs as an adult video store clerk, a telemarketer, a Gallup poll taker. I'm curious, what do you think those jobs taught you about being a person? You know, I think they taught me how to talk to other people because I was very shy. And I still am very shy, but at that age, I was cripplingly shy. And so I think those jobs taught me about communication and engaging with other people. And of course, you know, like it taught me what most jobs teach young people, that it is really hard to earn a living and that it is really hard to earn a living when you make $8 an hour or less. And, you know, it was very humbling, but appropriately so. I think every young person should learn like what 40 or 60 or 70 hours of work a week looks like and how hard it is to stay afloat. The unfortunate part is that so many people have to live that way 
and there's no safety net to catch them. Um, and I always had a safety net. I always had a family that would help me if I needed it. And so I also understood and learned just how lucky I was to have that kind of support. It's not that my family, you know, were the Rockefellers, but I was always going to have a place to go home to. I, I realized that not everyone had that. And I, that was another humbling thing to learn. You said that you were shy and are still shy. Do you feel that way now? I am still shy, yes. Um, but it's not a bad thing. I'm just who I am and it's all good. I wondered about it because you and I haven't met before. And this is, it's just an unusual way to be doing this. And there's this quote you have in chapter 50 of Hunger. And he said, I am terrified of other people. I hear the rude comments whispered. I see the stares and laughs and snickering. I see the thinly veiled or open disgust. And you see and hear those things in part because you have been a professor for a long time now. Yes. I am at once impressed and curious about this tendency because you seem to have this ability to walk towards the thing that you're afraid of. Well, you know, I have found that the things that scare me most end up being the most intellectually satisfying. And so I try not to ever let my fear control me to the point where I don't do something that could be good and useful. And so, you know, I do things that terrify me all the time. And I just have the capacity to be terrified and to do them anyway. And I also, you know, I think it's important to live my life. Like fat phobia is real. Racism is real. Homophobia is real. But you can't let that constrain your life. Otherwise, you'll never leave the house. And, and then that's what they want. Like They want you to feel so much shame that you stop living. And the older I get, the more I recognize that I have every right to live and be in the world and that I shouldn't have to shrink or make myself small to make other people comfortable. It's an ongoing project, and it's not like that it comes with ease. You know, I have to remind myself every single day that I have a right to be in the world. It's just an ongoing project, but it's a project that is worthwhile. Are some days harder than others to remind yourself of that? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think everyone has days where they feel like, oh, I, you know, I don't belong in this world. But, you know, I think with age comes, at least for me, slightly less self-consciousness because I have just so many new things to worry about. <laughs> <laughs> Roxanne, that was so close to being positive. I know. <laughs> Just right there on that edge. You said the story of my life is wanting, hungering for what I cannot have, or perhaps wanting what I dare not allow myself to have. What do you want that you can't have right now? Well, you know, my life has changed quite a lot since I wrote that book. At the time, I just wanted peace and happiness, and I wanted to be in a functional relationship. I just, those things felt very elusive. And my life is in a vastly different place now for a lot of reasons. So I think a lot of that sort of bottomless pit of hunger, um, a lot of it has gone away. And what has it turned into? Right now, I think what it has turned into is continuing to do the work of dealing with my trauma and trying to make the life that I want for myself instead of thinking I'll never have that life. You know, I just try to realize and recognize every day that it actually can have that life, but you know, it's not going to come to you. You have to go out and get it and do things to get it. And 
So I just try to do that work. I'm sorry if this is kind of a dim question, but when you say that life, what does that look like? What does that mean to you? Oh, for me, it just means a full personal and professional life. My professional life has been pretty good for several years now. It's been very busy and very overwhelming, but it's been very good. And my personal life was just a complete disaster. A career does not keep you warm at night, and it does not provide companionship or anything like that. And so, you know, I've had to put work into my personal life that I neglected for very many years. And so now it looks like, you know, I'm in a relationship, I'm getting married. And, you know, it's just putting energy into that relationship and putting as much energy into that relationship and my relationship with my family as I put into my work. Um, Because you can't live on work alone. It's just not sustainable. When did you make that realization? Um, I, I think I always knew it. But I think that I made that realization for sure, when I was um, I was teaching at Purdue until recently mm-hmm. and living in Los Angeles. And so I would commute and I was in a parking lot in Indiana when I was home for teaching. And this guy had just said something evil to me in the parking lot. And I was just like, oh, man, here I am in this really unpleasant town that I do not like. I did like my job. I just didn't like living in Indiana. And, you know, I just realized I need more than this. I need more than this. I have got to do something to get myself out of this rut and to to stop feeling this unhappy. And so from that moment on, I just decided to start making the kinds of changes that I thought might contribute to being happier. Back in October of 2003, uh, Hilton Nails wrote a profile of Toni Morrison in The New Yorker. I believe it's something we both read and liked. Uh, In it, Toni Morrison said, I can accept the labels because being a black woman writer is not a shallow place, but a rich place to write from. It doesn't limit my imagination. It expands it. It's richer than being a white male writer because I know more and I've experienced more. Mm Mm-hmm. Do you feel similarly about your own work? I would not presume (laughs) to say that I know more than Toni Morrison. Not more than her. No, no, no. Or what I mean by that is like that she knows more is incontrovertible. I would not assume or presume to to suggest that I have the same level of uh, wit and wisdom as her. She's incredible. She's just incredible. But I do think that being a black woman and a writer is a very rich place to work from. And early in my career, I did bristle against the labels because I felt like they were boxing me in. But then when I realized, no, they're not boxing me in unless I allow them to, you know, it was very freeing. And, you know, now I lean into it. Yes, I'm a Black woman writer. I write all kinds of things. It doesn't mean what you think it means. Um, But I'm very proud to be Black and I'm very proud to be a Black woman writer. Um, So, you know, I I do think she's right. And I do think that I have a cultural history to draw from that is incredibly rich and diverse, um, particularly as a Haitian American, uh, which certainly informs and influences everything I write. I wouldn't have it any other way. I keep thinking about Toni Morrison and the way Black women and, and really women writers are treated. And you've spoken about this many, many times. 
I have something where where you say, kind of where we started about people expecting a kind of emotional bandwidth from you, especially in the aftermath of hunger. You went on these book tours and, and people would come up to you and tell you about their trauma and their pain. How have you dealt with that? Boundaries, 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 and a whole lot of therapy. When you write about sexual violence, when you write about bodies, when you write about sexuality, people are inevitably going to be drawn to that because I think so many of us feel so alone. And when you see someone articulate something of your experience, you you feel that connection and you want to tell them. And so I definitely respect my audience and their desire to share their lives with me. But I also am only one person and I'm not a therapist and I already have my own sad story to carry. And so I I try to maintain firm boundaries about what I will and will not do. And um, I learned, I did a book event with Ann Patchett for Hunger and she told me this story about how after she wrote her book about her friendship with Lucy Greeley, on days when she wasn't feeling up to it, she would tell the audience that she already lost her best friend and she can't take on the sad story of whatever happened to your best friend. And I was just so impressed with the wherewithal she had to not give in to this desire to be everything everyone wants you to be at all times and to stand up for herself and to recognize that she could not take in any more pain. Mm. And that really helped me moving forward from that point in terms of how I dealt with the kinds of things that my audience tends to bring to my events. Uh, And so I do try to listen wherever possible, but like, I don't do hugs. I just refuse. And so I was ahead of the curve in terms (laughs) of social distancing. I I was all about handshakes. And now I think, you know, we're going to be doing a lot of nods. Look, now you have a really strong rationale for why you didn't do hugs. Absolutely. I was just social distancing. (laughs) Um, But that really helped. And so I just try to stand up for myself whenever I can. And when people have this expectation that I'm going to speak to whatever given issue they care about on that day, or that I'm going to carry their emotional burdens with them. um, I just like to tell people, I respect your story and I'm so sorry for what you've been through. And that's all I can do is listen and let them know that they have been heard. But I can't do much more beyond that. There are a great many people that do not respect your boundaries, both in email and on Twitter. Mm -hmm. Many of these folks produce a kind of constant stream of ad hominem attacks. Mm -hmm. How are you dealing with that these days? I take Twitter way too personally and way too seriously. And so I'm working on disengaging because nothing healthy comes from it. And my fiance, who I live with, notices it because, you know, she'll see my demeanor change and she'll say, what's wrong? And I'm like, yes, Fred4456 just told me I'm I'm hideous. And she'll go and look at Fred4456 and she'll say, he has three followers. What Like, why do you care? And so I'm trying to develop the necessary perspective to recognize that I can't make everyone happy, that people are going to be upset with me because I'm opinionated um, and because I'm flawed. And um, it is just part of the package where some people are going to really like what I have to say and some people are going to like and respect what I have to say or just respect what I have to say. And some people are going to absolutely despise me um, or disagree with me or think I'm full of shit. And, you know, as someone who 
is type A and a perfectionist, it's challenging, but I just have to recognize that you can't please everyone. And I just try to remember that every day. And that's also an ongoing project. I've said this before, but a lot of people have been kind enough to leave reviews of this podcast. But there is one piece of shit on iTunes who is so mean to me. (laughs) And I can never get this line out of my head. He says, "Um, I was all out of NyQuil, but thankfully, Sam Fragoso's voice did the trick. Ouch. (laughs) Yeah, and it's interesting because you can get like, 3,333 amazing comments. Right. And it's the one negative comment that you, that especially me, like I'll carry that one negative comment around for weeks. And it's it's hard. Like, and I remember them like almost word for word, just like I remember the bad reviews of my books pretty much word for word. Roxanne, that was four years ago for me, by the way. Of course it was. <laughs> I mean, that was yesterday, basically. Four years, <laughs> yesterday, same thing. What's the worst thing someone has said about your books? (laughs) The worst thing someone said about my books, it really got under my skin, even though it was a pretty positive review. She referred to me as a diarist. And I was just like, diarist. First of all, I have a PhD. Thank you very much. Second of all, what? There is actual craft that goes into my work that you walk away with that impression was a rhetorical choice. And... So as you can see, it's still fresh, even though that was like four years ago. (laughs) So yeah, that to me was the worst thing because there are some, some of the negative reviews are just reviewers that don't like me. And some of the negative reviews have a lot of merit to them. And I learn a lot from them like, oh, you're right. I could have been more rigorous in my research and thinking there or whatever. And then some of them are just fucking petty and snide. And, you know, I hold on to it. How do you know the reviewers don't like you? Oh, that's just my impression. But like when you can see like the disdain with which they write about me and like the online world is the the writing world, I should say, is very small. It seems big, but it's really small. And most writers are like separated by one degree. You know when someone doesn't like you and it's okay. I'm not everyone's cup of tea. And so when they do a review and it's rare, I mean, this has happened maybe twice ever. Um, you just, you can see it and like, I just know like, oh, right. She hates me. So of course she's going to write that. No problem. You know, you're going to get married. Congratulations, by the way. Oh, thanks. But I'm, I'm curious because when it came to the, your sexual preferences, mm-hmm. you wrote this line about how I performed queerness so I could believe this half truth that I had told everyone that I had told myself. I marched. I was here and queer. I wore an excessive number of pride rings and pins and such. I was passionately militant. What do you make of that version of Roxanne at that age, especially now as you're about to get married? You know, I think that version of myself was just, again, desperate for community and for belonging. And I I think especially when you are new to the queer community, you want to prove your bona fides and you want to be like the best baby gay that you ever could possibly be. And even though I was pretty sure I was still also attracted to men, I just, men had done so many terrible things to me that I just couldn't reconcile that. And so it made me throw myself into my queer identity even more. And I am queer. I'm marrying a woman um, and proudly so. But, you know, I think that 
young me was just extraordinarily enthusiastic for a great many reasons to, you know, like prove that I belonged in the community and to also sort of run away from trying to face the fact that desire is complex and sometimes you desire the very thing that has caused you great harm. So what do you make of this, again, in your book, which if it has not been made clear by this podcast, people should read or reread this book. I'm hyper-conscious of how I take up space. As a woman, I'm not supposed to take up space. And yet, as a feminist, I'm encouraged to believe I can take up space. I live in a contradictory space where I should try to take up space, but not too much of it, and not in the wrong ways, where the wrong way is any way where my body is concerned. Where are you on that now? I'm in a similar place, but again... With each passing year, I recognize my right to be in the world um, without apology. And I, you know, it's it's an ongoing project where I have to remind myself, I have a right to take up space. I have a right to be here. I don't have to hide myself. Has falling in love helped you acknowledge that? Oh, definitely. Uh, My fiance is a badass. She is just, even though I hate the word badass, (laughs) she's a lifelong New Yorker. She's a fucking killer. And she doesn't take shit from anyone. Um, She's incredibly smart, incredibly kind, unapologetic about her right to take up space in the world. And so when I watch her standing up for herself or standing up for me, like we were in Paris and um, we were at a ridiculous store um, looking at ridiculous things. And I sat in this chair because... What kind of store is that? I'm not naming the store. (laughs) I don't want want people to get up my ass. Um, (laughs) I was sitting on this chair because we were looking at it and I was like, oh my God, this is a beautiful chair. And she was wandering around and I sat in the chair and I was like, you know, maybe we should buy this chair. And the security guard came up to me and made me... He was like, you can't sit here. You have to move. And I was like, oh... Okay. And so I got up and I went to talk to Debbie again. And I told her, I was like, oh my God, the security guard just made me get out of that chair. And she said, what? And so she went and she sat in the chair. And after like five or six minutes, someone came up to her and asked her if she'd like a drink or if they could do anything for her. Right. And uh, she immediately became incensed. And she said, well, um, your security guard told my girlfriend she couldn't sit in this chair, but you offered me a drink and if there was anything. And so you have to apologize and he has to apologize to her as well. And it became this whole thing. And we got drinks and we got impeccable service from that point forward. And I did get the apologies. And I could give you 50 examples of the kinds of things she does to stand up for people in the world, but especially the people that she loves. And that just makes me want to stand up, not only for myself, but for her and um, do the standing up I do in my career for people, like with my writing. And so it it helps reinforce like that it is important to take these stands. What has she taught you about yourself? She's taught me a lot about myself. But I think one of the main things she has taught me about myself is that I am not the worst version of myself that I imagine myself to be. And... Um, When I see myself the way she sees me, it's incredibly eye-opening and incredibly encouraging. Like, oh, if she sees me that way and she's pretty with it, then maybe I am not as terrible as I think I am. I mean, I'm a stranger to you, but I'm just going to go out on a limb here and say you're not as terrible as you think you are. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not. I like intellectually, I know I'm not. I'm, I'm actually pretty decent. 
as a person, um, no matter what Twitter says. <laughs> but uh, yeah, you know, it's always helpful when you have someone in your corner who loves you unconditionally. And it's nice to see that even though it took a long time to get here, and I've had good relationships before this, you know, the relationship I had before this was complicated but good. And even the relationship before that was complicated but good. Um, but this is a great relationship and a fully mutual relationship. And yeah, I just learn new things with her every day. Something you've asked many writers, uh, including the late Toni Morrison, is this question, what do you like most about your writing? You know, I think what I like most about my writing is that I am willing to make myself vulnerable when it will serve what I'm writing. And, you know, I think that that it, it's a a skill to be able to do that and to make those choices and to also know when you shouldn't make yourself vulnerable. And so I, I do like that about my writing. Is it hard for you to say that? No, I work really hard. <laughs> so I've come to a point where, you know, I don't think everything I write is great, but I do think that I'm a very good writer and I should hope so. I've been working at it for more than half of my life. <laughs> Some writers have a kind of sense of modesty that does not allow them to say nice things about themselves. I think it's false modesty. I really do. I wasn't going to say that, but I'm glad you are. No, it's false. I, I, I mean, you know, this idea that to be a writer, you have to have crushingly low self-esteem. I hate everything I write. Like literally every essay I write, I tell my fiance, oh my God, this is trash. And she's like, you say that every time. But fundamentally, I know that I am not a trash writer, like on the whole. And I think most writers know that about themselves. And I think that they do this real performative thing where they're just like so full of self-loathing and everything I write is crap. And it's like, well, then why the hell should I buy your book? Like, what's the, you know, and I just think it's exhausting, this dance of false modesty, especially when women do it. Like, we're dealing with enough. Like, it's just be real about our talents. My last question for you, um, as you get married... Mm -hmm. and enter some new chapter of your life, especially in this strange pandemic moment where I think a lot of people are taking stock of what's important to them, what they want in the future. What do you want for yourself in the years ahead? You know, I want to just continue to grow as a person and grow in the ways that I can be a good member of a community, of my communities. Um, I still have career ambitions, of course. You know, I would love to write something worthy of a Pulitzer, things like that. But I want to make sure that I never take whatever success I've achieved and might achieve in the future for granted and that I don't just sit on it and waste it. There are a lot of incredible writers in this world that don't get the time and energy of readers that they deserve. And I think it is the responsibility of writers with more visibility to make sure that we're shining light on those writers so that they get opportunities. And so I just hope that I continue to do that work and to use whatever influence I may have as responsibly and as broadly as I can. Roxanne Gay, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you, Sam.
that's our show. Special thanks this week to Caitlin Adams and Roxanne Gay. To purchase any number of her books, from Hunger to Bad Feminist, be sure to visit her site at roxannegay.com slash writing. If you'd like to learn more about Roxanne or our show, you can do so on our site at www.talkeasypod.com. We've had the great privilege of hosting uh, many brilliant writers on this podcast, including Elizabeth Gilbert, Gloria Steinem, Wesley Morris, Malcolm Gladwell, Noam Chomsky, Patricia Lockwood, and Morgan Parker. You can find all of those episodes and more on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you do your listening. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TalkEasyPod. And if you'd like to drop us a line, feel free to do so at TalkEasyPod at gmail.com. And lastly, if you'd like to make a financial contribution of any size, you can visit our site at www.talkeasypod.com slash donate. This show is made possible by you and our incredible team. Our executive producer is Janixa Bravo. Our associate producer is Nikki Spina. Illustrations by Krishna Shenoy. Graphics by Ian Jones. Our social media is by Deja Washington. Our music is by Dylan Peck and Jin Sang. Our editors are Andre Lin and Kat Owen. Our engineer is Tim Moore. And finally, the show is produced by Caroline Reebok. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. Next Sunday is an episode with someone very near and dear to my heart. I hope you'll come back and listen to that. Until then, have a good week. Stay safe. Wash your hands. I'll see you soon. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA.